this morning? Yes. Okay, good. All right. There were so many things about what we were and weren't having for Easter. So if you are headed, if you have a child the age for a toddler nursery or children's church, you're dismissed at this time to head back that way. Those of you who will remain in the sanctuary, if you would please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I was asked by someone if we would be in Leviticus for Easter Sunday. And I said, if, if it had worked out to be one more chapter after, yes. But it didn't work out that way. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, I'm not going to read the entire chapter, though we will walk through portions of the entire chapter together. But what I do want to read is the first few verses. It says, now I make known to you, beginning in verse 1, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received in which you also stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom... Remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and I'm not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised and our preaching is in vain, your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even to be found false witnesses of God because we testify against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, in fact, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then even those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are above all men most to be pitied. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for its truth. Father, thank you for this testimony of the importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Father, we thank you for the deliverance that comes through the truth of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for it in his name. Amen. So this morning, we're going to technically walk through all 58 verses of 1 Corinthians 15. The, the, the meat of it being toward the beginning, and then we'll kind of move a little more quickly at the end. But the resurrection is the key to all of this. The entirety of the Christian faith is built on the foundational principle that Jesus Christ historically, physically, in reality, not metaphorically, has risen from the dead. That, that's the crux. That's the cornerstone. If you were to boil Christianity down, 
to a couple of sentences. I don't encourage it because Christianity is much more nuanced and complex than that. But if you were to strip the essence of Christianity down to a few sentences, it would be this. God is the creator of heaven and earth. And he made humanity in his image. Humanity in rebellion against the kindness of God sinned against the Most High, creating a relational separation between themselves and him. But God, because of his manifest love for his creation, has sent his son into the world, reflecting their image in the incarnation that he might die on the cross, save them from their sins and has proven all of this true By his resurrection from the dead. That's the essence of Christianity. Everything else beyond that. Starts to get into some of the window dressing. Which by the way is the stuff that most of us spend our time arguing about if we're honest. It's the last time you genuinely heard somebody argue about the resurrection of the dead. I mean maybe somebody's a total unbeliever sure. But within the Christian faith, like genuine, real Christian faith, we don't argue about that. It's foundational. We argue about a host of other things. And so the the resurrection is key. It's a historical resurrection. Jesus died for sins. He was buried and he was raised. This is not a metaphor. It's not an allegory. It's real and it's true and it's meaningful. And here in these first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 15, we have Paul pointing out the historical appearances of Jesus in the flesh. Look at what he says. He says that he appeared to Cephas. That's Peter. Appeared to the twelve. He appeared to more than 500 different brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive now. In other words, you don't believe me, go ask them, is what he's saying. So don't take my word for it. There's people here who saw him, had conversations with him. Go talk to them about it. Said then he appeared to James and all of the apostles. And then, of course, Paul talks about his post-ascension appearance of Christ to him on the road to Damascus. So there's these historical appearances. Now... Why is it necessary that the resurrection take place? Why is there a necessity for resurrection? Paul talks about this in verses 12 through 19. The crux of Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Five things that you need to note. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, if he did not come back from the dead, if it's just this make-believe story, if, if it's some some... Visions that these guys were having. Some phantasm that was occurring. Paul lists out five things that are now true that no one wants to be true. First, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then all Christian preaching, and by preaching he means here evangelism, is empty and meaningless. Because there's nothing for us to preach. There's nothing to be taught. There's nothing to be believed. Jesus is just one of among many moral teachers that have existed in the world. He's like all of the other philosophers and leaders of religion. Follow him if you want to. Take the good. Leave out the bad. Buffet style Jesus. 
But there's nothing for you to really be transformed about when it comes to Christ. The message of the gospel's core is empty and false if Jesus is not raised. As such, those who have believed that message, your faith is empty if Jesus is not raised from the dead. You're believing a lie. You're believing a falsehood. You're believing something that's just not true. You're staking your entire life's existence on something that is empty and meaningless if Christ is still dead. What a way to waste your life. Third, here in this text, Paul says that God himself is at best misrepresented by us or at worst is a liar because God himself has declared that Christ has been risen from the dead. This is the declaration from on high that Christ Jesus is not dead. He's been risen. He's been raised up and that God himself has raised him up. And if it's not true, then the God that we're claiming to believe in, the God that we're claiming to follow, the God who is a good God, an all-knowing God, an all-powerful God, an all-true God, a holy God, either we don't understand Him at all, or He has deceived us. Fourth, and this is where it gets very tense, very uncomfortable. If Christ is not raised, if he's not risen from the dead. Everyone, all of us are still in our sin. Because here's the thing. No other religious system has ever given us a definitive long term answer to the problem of human sin and wrongness. Those of you who've been with us on Sundays while we've been walking through Leviticus together know that you bring your offering for sin. And then very likely the next day or the day after you bring your offering for sin. And then the priest has to bring his offering for sin. And then they have to annually do an offering for everybody's sin just in case they missed any along the way. Day of atonement. And then you bring another offering for sin. And another offering for sin. And another offering for sin. And this endless cycle of sacrifices that never reaches an end. Because our sin never reaches an end. And you look at every other religious system. There's always some sort of flaw in the pattern of making people right. Maybe in the far eastern mystic religions, instead of trying to be right, you're just trying to find balance between the wrongness and the rightness that's in you. Maybe in Islam, you can follow the five pillars well enough that perhaps Allah will welcome you in. And we can run through all the rest of them. Christianity is the only one that makes a declaration. Someone else has done all the work for you. You just have to trust what they've done. 
And it's the end of your sinning. It's the end of your wrongness. It's the end of your wayward stance before a holy God. It is an escape from shame and guilt. And it is escape that's supplied to you wholly by the gift of another. Christianity is the only one that's done this. And it is only found in the testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And friend, I tell you this morning, if he's still dead, then so are you. Which leaves us to the fifth problem that Paul points out to an unresurrected Christ. Those who call themselves Christians are a pitiful people. They're to be pitied, he says here. We are to be a pitied, pitied. Above all other men, we are the most to be pitied because we're spending our lives chasing a lie, thinking our problems are solved when in fact they are not. But friends, the beautiful thing is, and we haven't read this yet. We stopped at 19. But the beautiful thing is, is that there is life giving power in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what we celebrate on Easter, the historical event of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Notice what it says in verse 20. But now I love it when that transition happens in the Bible. Somebody has said something that's a real bummer, a big downer. It's like, oh, man, that's awful. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. However, in spite of all the objections to what life might be like if Christ were not raised from the dead, Jesus is alive. And for those of you who are in that vein of music, I'm having a real hard time not doing Shylin's song right there. Jesus is alive. Anyway, so it's a fantastic song. You need to go look it up on YouTube. Pastor up in the Philadelphia area. Great song. Goes through every other deity and false world leader and talks about how dead they are. Except Jesus. Jesus is alive. And this is the beautiful power giving reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Notice his resurrection at the end of verse 20 is referred to as the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man death came. By a man also came the resurrection for the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all have been made alive. For each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. When he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Man. That's good. So notice the flow of things. God gave life at creation. Man sinned bringing the fall and judgment and death. God gives new life through Christ Jesus. And we call that redemption. And Jesus, by his resurrection from the dead, now gives us a variety and host of gifts. One He gives us life. Friends, apart from the work of Christ, his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, 
we are the walking dead. That's what we are. We move through this existence feeling that there's some great purpose and value to the things that we're doing. But apart from Christ, we're just dead men walking. It's what we are. Dead men walking. Seeking to fulfill our own pleasures and desires in any way that we can. Trying to fill the gap and the hole of emptiness that exists in each one of us with something that will satisfy and nothing really does. Trying to find ways to appease the pain in our conscience of guilt and shame that each one of us bears. Trying to add some semblance of light to the otherwise dark reality that we live in. But friends, every effort that we make apart from Christ comes up short. It's folly. It's chasing the wind. But Jesus has come to give us life. And as he said, when he preached his gospel here on this earth, according to his servant, John, he not only comes to give us life, but life abundant. Deep, rich, full, abiding life. Not only has he come to give us life, but he has also come to destroy the enemies of life. It says that Christ is reigning now after his resurrection and he will continue to reign until he's taken all of his enemies and made them a footstool. He's put his foot on their neck. He will destroy all the enemies of life and the last enemy that he will destroy will be death itself. And we in a final resurrection being resurrected like Christ was one day will have life everlasting with him. Christ is bringing all things under the proper rule of God, whether in redemption or in judgment. And if we were to continue reading through here in 1 Corinthians, Paul begins to speak about baptism, which we saw this morning. And baptism itself is a picture of this. We place someone underneath the water. As a picture of their going into the grave. And you pull them out of the water as a picture of them coming back to life again. The dead being buried with Christ. The old man dying. The new man being raised in the glory of the work of Christ Jesus. And friends, this picture of baptism is only sensible if there indeed is a resurrection from the dead. This picture of baptism indeed only resonates if Christ has gone down into the grave and has come back alive again. There are good friends of mine. There were even some jokes made about it this morning before the service started. Who've always wanted to know, hey, Philip, you know, a lot of times you don't sound like a regular Baptist, you know. I got a really good buddy of mine named Wade. He's like, you just need to hurry up and get on over to the Presbyterian church, Philip. And I said, Wade, you know, there's a problem with that. Not quite enough water to do a picture of being dead. Not quite enough water. Because that's the picture that's given in the text. 
What is the picture of our baptism? When we repent and when we believe, what is it that Paul even says if you were to look at the next eight verses after the ones we stopped at? What does he declare that that great Christian symbol represents? I am dead in Christ. I've been raised to walk in newness of life with him. Even our Christian symbols point out the glory of the resurrection. And then, not only does this Resurrection give us life. But it also is able to transform us. I want you to skip down to verse 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do they come? You fool. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of these seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly one is one and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. And for the stars differ from other stars in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. For also as it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. And the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man of the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. And as is the earthy, so are those who are earthy. And the heavenly, so are those who are heavenly. Just as we were born of the image of the earthy, so too we also will bear the image of the heavenly. Friends, this beautiful transformation that has taken place in us and that will ultimately take place in the fullness of the final resurrection one day that we get to participate in is this. Currently, my body, though I am redeemed, is perishable. It keeps dying every day. And there's absolutely nothing that I can do to stop it. A few Saturdays back, an elder in our church unwisely invited a bunch of men to play basketball. I feel that there needs to be some church discipline brought about in this foolish decision that was made. And, and when I foolishly arrived at the gym with him, Everyone else had arrived and I, I looked around the gym and I nudged him and I said, you, you do recognize we're the two oldest people here. And he, yeah. And so for the next four days after that Saturday, I walked with a noticeable limp. Noticeable limp. People were very concerned about it, except my wife. She mocked me. I told you not to go. I was like, I know. She's like, for 10 years, your doctors told you not to go. I was like, I know. And so along the way in my perishable body's life, this foot has developed a bone spur on the heel on the underside that runs up next to the tendon that connects to the sciatic that runs all the way up the side of the hip. 
And when I do impact activities like sprinting and jumping, which it's hard to play basketball and not do those two things. Sometimes that tendon gets really tight. And when it does, it bumps up next to that bone spur. And when it does, it shoots pain through the back of my heel and up the side of my leg like there's a small human being in there with a pickaxe doing like this constantly underneath my foot. And I was having a great time until the last game. And I turned to go run down the court and I felt it happen. And I said, oh, this is going to hurt for a lot of days. And there were two different things that went through my mind in this order when that happened. The first one was, my wife is going to mock me when I get home because I'm going to be. I told you not to go. And then the second that went through my mind, and it always is the second thing that goes through my mind. Philip, your body is fading away. And there's nothing that you can do about it. And when I feel physical pain from things like that, because my body is breaking down, there's still a lot of good health left in it, but it's breaking down and there's nothing that I can do to stop it. It reminds me the pain of an event like that reminds me, thanks be to God. One day he's going to give me a body that doesn't break down. great we move from the perishable to the imperishable we move from the common to the holy we move from the earthy to the heavenly we move from being fallen images of adam to remade in the exalted image of christ that is the transformation that the resurrection has on us and friends it's not a transformation that we're waiting for though it ultimately will happen one day but it's an already not yet we have some of this as part of our experience now I'm being remade now. My life is being transformed into the image of Jesus now. And I'm getting a taste of the glory that is to come. And what's happening to me spiritually will one day also be reflected in my life physically when I am remade in the final resurrection one day. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And then in verse 50, jump there. There's a future glory that the resurrection promises. He says, I say this, brothers, that the flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit that which is imperishable. But behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. It's a sign that I once saw over a nursery in a church one time. We won't all sleep, but they'll all be changed. <laughs> and that's a true story. Like, I really saw that sign over the nursery of the church. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have been made, have been put on by the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Friends, there is a present kingdom that's being built right now and a future 
completed kingdom that we will inherit one day. There is a change that is going to take place at the end for those who have not yet died and therefore are not raised. This is reminiscent of 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-17. I encourage you to look at that later. There is a final day in which full transformation of the repentant faithful will occur. Everything that we're striving for in our faith now, everything that we don't quite see but we hope for in Christ will come to full realization and it will no longer be faith but it will be sight and all things will be made new and sin will be put away forever. And friends, I'll tell you the truth. That imperishable body that was mentioned just a second ago, that's a cherry on top. I would suffer through the greatest physical pains possible if I knew that I would get to live in a universe where there was no influence of sin any longer. No more war. No more hate. No more greed. No more selfishness. No more pride. No more avarice, no more malice, no more ill speaking, no more gossip, no more backstabbing, no more violence. But all at peace and love, serving the other in a life that's unconcerned with self-glory and fully concerned with the well-being of those around them. But the Lord promises That not only will we experience a world like that, but we will experience that world in fully resurrected bodies that never break down again. I can't even begin to imagine what that's like. But that's a lot of future stuff. As we get ready to close this morning, that's a lot of future stuff. That's a lot of out there stuff. Does the resurrection matter right now? Look at these last few verses, 56 through 58. These last three verses that Paul talks about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want you to see the present power of the resurrection, what it does right now. Because a lot of what I've been talking about is the not yet. It's what's coming. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Sin is the sting of death. Scripture talks about that. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Same author to a different church, Paul in the book of Romans. Jesus has given us victory over sin. How has he done this? First, by fulfilling the law himself. Praise be to God. You don't have to fulfill the law to be right with God. The Hebrew people could not fulfill the law of God. And it was their law. 
I'm regularly and consistently thankful as a Gentile that I don't even have to try to fulfill the law of God. It's never my law in the first place. How compassionate of him to not add the burden of the law on me as a convert from among the Gentiles. It's beautiful what he has done. He basically declared the only reason that the law really exists is to show you that you need a savior. If you've been walking with us, those of you who are guests, I apologize. If you've been walking with us in Leviticus, the very first time they tried to have a worship service where they fulfilled the law of God, they messed the whole thing up and some people died over it. So glad that that's not how we're trying to come and be right with God. That Christ has come into the world. He's fulfilled all of that. He's fulfilled those moral laws about not stealing and not lying and not and not being proud. He's fulfilled those religious ceremonial laws of the sacrifices and the feast days and all the different things that go with that. He's fulfilled all of the all of those ritualistic and and, and, and all, all the different stuff that you see in there, all the different kinds of laws that you see in there. He's fulfilled every kind of law in every kind of way so that no matter what kind of sinner you are, he has fulfilled God's law for you. That's what he's done. And in doing so, he has removed the penalty of the law off of us. See, that's what we often forget is that this law that was given. There's a penalty associated with breaking that law. And Christ, having come into the world and fulfilled the law on our behalf, has made a great exchange in the gospel. I will fulfill the law for you. I will also take the penalty of breaking the law for you. So that now you are no longer under obligation to the law or its penalty. That's what Jesus has done for us. You say, well, Philip, then that means we can just live however we want to. Absolutely not. The whole rest of the book of Corinthians up to this point is basically Paul saying, no, that's not true. I hate that we couldn't cover the other 14 chapters before we got to this one. But basically, he says, you've lost your mind if you think how live however you want to live and do whatever you want to do. And, it, and God's OK with that. It's not how it is. He has given to us something much better than the law. The abiding presence of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to guide us in righteousness. So I don't have to pull out my 613 point checklist and go, all right, did I do this? Did I do that? Did I do that? Did I cut that piece of the animal off the right way? Did I drink that the right way? Did I pour that out the right way? Did I fix the right kind of bread there? Did I? Man, I'm lost. Let me start back over. I don't know. I don't have to do all that. You don't have to do all that. The law of Christ is very simple. Love God. Love people. You say, well, how do I do that? Praise be to the Lord. He gives us a host of different ways to do it. And sometimes the way that you love God and love people will look a little different than the way I love God and love people. And for the most part, that's okay. That's okay. Gave us some real basic ways for us to all do that together. Corporate worship being one of them and participation in the Lord's table and baptism and a few other things. But there's lots of different ways for this to look. Do I love God? Do I love people? Against this, there's no law. <laughs> love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the fruit of the spirit. 
Against these things there is no law. Thank you God for making it easy. And simple. And basic. Therefore, because that's true. Because the resurrection is what drives us to Christ making that great exchange. It's historically necessary for the life-giving, transforming power and that future glorious hope that we desire to all be wrapped up in the resurrection of Jesus. And as such, there's a call for Christians who have believed and repented and turned to Christ to be faithful, to be immovable, to do the work of the Lord because it truly is worth it. It is not in vain. Now, this morning, before we close, I would be... Miss, if I didn't pause long enough to affirm the fact that not everybody sitting in the room right now in this moment may have trusted on the Lord and called out on Christ and have repented of their sins and and have embraced the joy that this resurrection of Christ can truly bring. I know that that's the case. I sat in countless hundreds, not dozens Hundreds of religious services in my life as a lost man. Caring not one bit about this Christ that they were talking about who had died and had been raised. It's not an uncommon thing. And so this morning, if you're here today and you're like, you know what? None of this resonates with me. I, I, I don't I don't believe in Christ. I don't believe in what he's done. I don't. Friend, hear me this morning. Whatever you call it, there's a lot of words for it. Some people call it guilt. Some people call it shame. Some people call it discontent. Some people call it longing. Some people call it whatever. You you can fill in whatever it is. But there's an emptiness that all of us experience in life if we're honest. And we strive to fill the emptiness, the void with something or multiple somethings. It may be pleasure, maybe drugs, maybe alcohol, sexuality, you name it, whatever your vice is or vices are. Or it could be drive, it could be fame or notoriety or success in a workplace or a well-ordered family or any other host of things that might make you find some version of fulfillment, even if it's not necessarily a bad thing that you're longing for. But all of us have an emptiness inside and all of us are longing to fill it. And friend, hear me this morning, save you a lot of pain and a lot of sorrow and a lot of toil and a lot of trouble. If whatever you've identified to be your void is, your emptiness is, whatever word you want to use there, and you're trying to fill it with anything except for the resurrected Christ, it will always leave you wanting more. It will, whatever it is that you're putting in that void will never satisfy your soul. It won't. And you will come to the end of your life knowing full well that your life has been wasted pursuing empty things. But know this. 
Christ Jesus has come to die and save sinners. He has come to close the gap between us and God. He has come to fill the void that sin has left in our hearts and not only fill it, but to take that dark, empty heart out and replace it with a heart full of life and love and goodness that reflects the true image and glory of God that can only be found in Jesus Christ. You say, well, what do I have to do? It's like the guys in the book of Acts. They said, what do we have to do? All you have to do is acknowledge that you're a sinner. Repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Say it's too easy. That's too easy. Friends, it's supposed to be easy. Because you're not supposed to do any other work. It's supposed to be easy. Because the hard part has been done for you. Someone else took your place. Someone else died your death. Someone else fulfilled the law of God for you. Someone else has appeased the wrath of the Most High God against your sin. Someone else has been raised from the dead. And he stands offering to you a free gift. The gift of life. For some of you. That's an overwhelming thought. That God would really love that much and make salvation that easy. And maybe you have questions at the end of our worship service. We're going to be making some announcements and singing some songs and doing some other stuff. We have a few things left to do. But there are piles of people here who would love to sit around and talk to you about that. Have conversations with you about that. Answer any questions you have about that. Because, friends, that's what the resurrection's about. It's about the fact that Christ has come into the world to save sinners. To take those who have no hope and no life and give them hope, freedom, joy, and true delight. Soul-altering, life-changing delight. That's what Christ has come to do for those of you in the room who have already experienced that. This Sunday, above all, because it's historical, but every Sunday that we gather together is a resurrection Sunday. Where we remember together this great thing God has done for us. And we agree with one another that no matter how difficult life may actually be, there is no greater joy than the joy that is found in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That he has conquered sin and death and that he offers life and peace. And Father, we praise you for whatever work you will do in our lives because of your true word today. In Jesus' name, amen.